If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 25 this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Acts together. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that in recent weeks we've looked at the accounts relating to Stephen and his testimony and how ultimately uh, he becomes the first martyr in the church. And last week what we looked at is in in killing Stephen, uh, Saul and others felt that that would somehow diminish the impact of the church, that that might quiet this, this gospel that was being proclaimed. But what we saw last week and what we've seen throughout the history of the church is that persecution only grows the church. I shared with you last week that, that quote from 18 centuries ago by Tertullian who said the, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is very much what we've seen happen and will see happen in the book of Acts. And so now that Stephen has been killed for the gospel and preaching it, uh, the scripture tells us that there's great persecution that comes, that the disciples are scattering. But you'll notice, as we see in today's text, as they scatter, they are scattering to proclaim the gospel and to take the gospel to the nations. It's a reminder to us of what God has called the church to do today. And so I want us to look to this, to be reminded of that, but as we are, to also be reminded of some of the obstacles that we encounter in that process. And so, if you will, out of reverence for the Word of God, if you're able, if you would stand as I read for us Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. This is what God's inspired Word says to us today. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord to the Lord that, if possible, 
the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samarians. Father God, we do ask in Jesus' name that you would bless the reading of your word, that you might teach us today what it means to respond to the gospel, that we might understand the truth of it. We pray for this in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. You may have seen in the news recently uh, a fraud, a, a scam that's going on right now. Perhaps you've even been one who's received one of these phone calls. The, the calls appear to be legitimate at first. The caller ID says IRS. And then someone calls and you pick up the phone thinking it's the IRS and they tell you that there's a problem. And the problem is you owe some back taxes. <laughs> And the problem with that is, is that if you don't take care of that problem immediately, there's going to be some severe penalties and consequences. So they go on to try to convince people that they need to immediately go and, and buy a prepaid visa cards and other means that they can then, over the phone, communicate back numbers and digits so that that money can be immediately transferred to the IRS. Well, this, of course, is a scam. It is a, a fraud. But it is one that many have responded to thinking it was legitimate. In fact, I read just this week that in recent, the last couple of years as this has grown as a fraud, about 3,000 victims have already paid over $14 million to these scammers. Now you may hear that this morning and think, well, well who would do that? I mean, who would hand over their money to a phone call? Well... 3,000 people would, to the tune of $14 million. Why? Well, because it, it appears to be legitimate. And when they answer the phone, the phone says, IRS, the people on the other end, uh, present credentials that, that seems to identify them with the IRS. In fact, most accounts say that they know the person's name, their birth city, their birth date, and even the last four digits of their social security number when they call them. And so it appears to be genuine, it appears to be legitimate, but it's truly found to be a fraud. Well, we don't just need to worry about phone calls in the Church of Jesus Christ today. We need to be concerned about frauds coming in the name of the Lord. About those who appear to be genuine in what they say and do, but, but upon further investigation we find, no, they, they are fraudulent. They are preaching a false gospel they are led by false prophets. And they abound in the world today. And many, many are led astray by them. Much more than 3,000. And so the question for us is, how, how, how do we know who these people are? They, they come in so many forms. There are some who are simply charlatans. They, they, they just want money. And so they'll tell you and they'll tell me if we will just send in our seed money. If we just plant that seed of faith, then, then God will bless us. He'll, he'll grow that in the form of some miracle we're hoping for, some healing we're seeking God for. If we just have enough faith, and all the while they get richer and richer and richer. 
that there are others who have founded false religions, cults, who come and say they're coming in the name of God, but when we examine what it is they teach, we find that they have either added to God's words or taken from God's words. That they come in many, many forms. And so how can we spot the fakes? Was the same way people are trained to spot counterfeit bills. You know the counterfeit by knowing what the real thing looks like. If you know the real thing good enough, that then you can spot immediately the counterfeits. But the problem in the church today, for many of us, is we don't know what the real thing looks like. We haven't spent enough time studying the genuine Word of God. And then when false Gospels are presented to us, we can't identify them. I heard it illustrated once this way. You, you, you imagine a puzzle. In my parents' house right now, there's a thousand-piece puzzle. Mom thought this would be a great thing to do with the kids. They lost interest in ten seconds, and now her and dad are working on this thousand-piece puzzle. And unless things have changed radically since the other day, it's not close to being done yet. And so, if I really wanted to mess around with my parents, with my mom, as I have so many times, I could easily just walk by that table and pick up four or five pieces of that puzzle. And she would have no idea, I didn't do it by the way, but she would have no idea and neither would you. Why? Because right now it's a thousand random pieces that aren't put together. But when you put together 994 of them, you will notice if six are missing. Maybe you've had that experience. You get towards the end and all of a sudden, wait a second, I'm missing some pieces. Friends, the same thing is true in our faith today if we don't put the pieces together then we can't rightly discern when someone comes and adds something to it or take something from it and so we are called as believers to examine God's word rightly so that we can understand in the book of Acts there's so much here for us to understand what well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit what is that the Spirit does what, what are the things we need to be careful of in our study of this book We'll look at several of those things today, beginning with the first point I put there in your notes. A point we've talked about before and we'll talk about again because it is foundational in this study. The Holy Spirit, point one, empowers us to proclaim the gospel to the nations. When we speak of the Spirit's role in the life of the believer consistently through the book of Acts, the, the, the primary fruit you see there of the Spirit is gospel proclamation. And we see that here in Acts chapter 8. We're reminded in verse 4 that there's persecution. And that persecution has scattered these believers. The, the enemy thinks that if he can bring persecution against the church, that that will diminish the church. But the Spirit then fuels the church to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. Where? Samaria. <laughs> And the disciples had not yet gone to Samaria. But now what happens? Persecution comes on the church, and it's not the apostles who go, but it's this one named Philip, who the Scripture tells us goes down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, you have heard Philip's name already. Back when there's this potential division that we looked at in the church there in Jerusalem, 
You'll remember at Pentecost, the gospel is proclaimed in all these different nations. All these Jews who had come there to Jerusalem for Pentecost from the ends of the earth, they're hearing the gospel, they're responding to the gospel. God is growing His church, but, but, but there's some problems there. There's some potential divisions there. And one of them was you had this, this conflict that rose between the, the, the Hebrew widows and the Hellenist widows. That they spoke two different languages. They came from two different cultures. And the Hellenist widows were looking, saying, well, wait a second, the, the Hebrew widows, they're, they're getting more, or they're getting attended to better than we are. So you'll remember that the people were called to, to lay resources there at the apostles' feet, and then those were distributed to any as they had need. And the Scripture calls us to care for the widows and the orphans. And here we see very practically the church was caring for those widows through a daily distribution, likely of food, perhaps money at times. And so the Hellenist widows look and say, well, wait, well, our needs aren't getting met. We're getting looked down on. This isn't fair. So what happens? Well, the apostles get together and they pray about it and they decide, well, if we, if we just attend to this, then the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the Word will be neglected. And so let's look for, for faithful, spirit-filled believing men who can step in and serve in this role. And, and of those men, you have this one named Philip. Philip is commissioned to go and serve those widows. And yet here we see him in a very different role. He is now going to Samaria and he is proclaiming the gospel. So the question there is, has, has his call, has his commission changed? Has he been given a new role in the church? And I would say I don't think so. I think what we see here and what Philip does is what, what we should see in the life of the church today. Every Christian is called to go and preach the gospel. It's the call on all of our lives, and yet we tend to think, well, that's, you know, that's kind of the pastor's job, that's the minister's job, that's the Sunday school teacher's job, that's the, that's the leader's role. They do that. I'll serve in this kind of supporting role over here. But what we're reminded of, friends, as we read through this book is, no, the Spirit empowers us all to share the gospel. And that means today that, that if, you have, if you have responded to the gospel, if you've come to that recognition, that understanding that you indeed are a sinner and you have repented and turned from that sin and placed your faith in Christ Jesus, and, and now you're walking by faith with Christ, that means you have been called, as I have and as others have, to take the gospel to the nations. But most of the time, if we're honest, we don't even take the gospel to our neighbor. It's a hard thing. It's a difficult thing. But let's be honest, it's a scary thing. I became a Christian my freshman year of college. And within just a few months, I decided to go on a conference with this group called Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a a staff member of Campus Crusade who had shared the gospel with me. I had responded to that gospel. And I didn't know much else other than there's a group of college students going to Daytona Beach for spring break. Great. And so I signed up and I went. Well, I learned two things on the drive down there that I wasn't aware of. The first one I learned was that it was biker week at Daytona Beach. Uh, the second thing I learned is that what we were going to be doing all week was sharing Christ with people. And I was terrified. I was terrified to share the gospel with anybody, but I kind of had this image in my head of biker week and me walking down the beach 
and going and approaching these people to talk to them about the gospel and them running over me with their motorcycles. I just, I wasn't sure how this was going to play out. And so that first day we got there to the conference, uh, people started pairing up to go out and share the gospel. And I thought, well, well, I need to find someone I can go with who's the professional. <laughs> I'm the newbie. Maybe they're not expecting me to do much. And so I noticed there this man named Shane. Shane was a staff member with Campus Crusade. He actually was one who had shared the gospel with me. And I thought, well, he's the professional. And so I'll go with the professional and I won't have to say much. And so that, that plan I felt was a good one. So Shane and I paired up and, and I told him, Shane, I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about a thing. And so we go walking down the beach and, and we come to this group of bikers that's about that far away. And, and I'm not so intimidated now because I'm like, I got Shane. Shane's like six foot six. He can share the gospel. He'll take care of this. Well, we get about this close to him and Shane turns to me and says, all right, Richard, I'm going to introduce us. You share the gospel. And then he just goes right into it. And I'm thinking, there's the ocean, I can swim, I can run, or, Lord, okay, <laughs> let's see what happens here. And so Shane did what he said he was going to do, he introduced us, and then I, I started to share as best I could the gospel. I had a little, little uh, pamphlet there that walked through the gospel, and I simply opened it up, and I, I started reading through it, and friends, as I read through it, I, I had one of the most intriguing gospel conversations I've ever had. That this couple and what they'd been through and where they were at in life, I experienced this divine appointment where the sovereign God of the universe had placed us in this conversation so that we might talk about things they desperately needed to hear, they wanted to hear, they had been longing to understand. And we stood there and talked on that beach for about an hour and a half. I'll never forget that moment because it reminded me evangelism isn't just the professional's job. Now, now I'm on this end now. I'm the professional. I I get paid to be good. Y'all are good for nothing. (laughs) This is my job. When I walk on the streets of Bloomfield, when I go talk to people about Jesus, they don't look at me and say... What's he doing that for? They go, oh yeah, that's, that's the preacher. That's what preachers do. Preachers talk to people about Jesus. They expect that. When you go and talk to them about your faith, it's a bit different. In your job, you're not getting paid to do it, but it very much is your job and my job because it's the job of every believer. And, and I have seen, honestly, more gospel fruit, more people trusting in Christ with their life through lay people in the church sharing the gospel than I have through myself or other ministers doing it. That they might walk an aisle one Sunday when I preach a sermon, but then they walk right back out the door in a few months. But you in their life, God has put you there for a reason. And part of that reason, I believe, is so that you might share with them this good news. And He's not said, go do this on your own. No, we see as He did with Philip here, he has empowered you with his Holy Spirit. And the Scripture tells us the Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. The Spirit wants to say, let me tell you about God. And as Spirit-filled believers, we are the means God uses to share the Gospel with people who desperately need to hear it. And, And notice who needed to hear it in this passage. Philip goes to Samaria. Now, if you 
know much about Samaria, you remember anything about the Samaritans, you, you know that the Samaritans were, they were sort of a mixed race. And they were looked down upon by the Jewish people. Uh, basically, you had descendants of Jews who had intermarried with descendants of Assyrians. And the result was this, this mixed race who were looked down on. In fact, the, the Orthodox Jewish people in Jerusalem wanted to have nothing to do with the Samaritans. We have recorded that the prayers of Orthodox Jewish men who, among other things, they would say each morning, God, thank you, I was not born a Samaritan. They looked at them as lesser people, as cursed people. And now you have Philip, this convert to faith in Christ from a Jewish background, being called to go to who? Not to people like him. Probably didn't look like him. Didn't have a, a lot of similarities with him. But he is called to overcome those barriers and that boundary in order to share with them what they desperately needed to hear, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, that, that is the mark, I believe, of the Spirit-filled church today. Is that when you look around, everybody doesn't look the same. Because people of every nationality and every skin color and every economic level and every political persuasion, they all need the same thing. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what should draw us together as believers is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is very much what we see happen here in Samaria. As Philip goes and he proclaims the gospel, it is a reminder to us that we are all called to go and to proclaim the gospel. But there is a warning here. Because in proclaiming the gospel, there are things we will encounter that we need to be prepared for. And we see that as we continue in this passage. Point two. As we proclaim the gospel, we need to recognize there are false prophets. I started with the, ser the sermon talking about how there are frauds. There are those who appear to be genuine, but they're really not. We see one of those in this text. As Philip proclaims the gospel, as people respond to the gospel, as God is doing this miraculous work and people are being healed and there's great joy in this city, we read about this one named Simon, a magician. Now, when we read magic here, we're, we're not talking about the, the, the magic of our day that you see on the TV special. We're, we're talking about a, a dark magic. We're talking about people who could conjure up spirits. In fact, there were some who said they could communicate to the dead. They could possess people with spirits. They could do supernatural, spiritual things because of their connection to the underworld. There's a great darkness here in Simon. But notice how people respond to it. They were amazed. And they paid attention to him. All of them from the least to the greatest. And this is what they said of him. This man is the power of God that is called great. Now there's something there. When you take that phrase, this man is the power of God that's called great, and you look at the Greek language there, and the phrases and the terms that are used, you find that same language, those same Greek phrases being used to describe later by Orthodox theologians, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. 
What's being said here of Simon isn't just that he's this amazing performer. What's being said here of Simon is that there's something within him that's divine. That there's something within him that is like God. In fact, church history tells us that Simon was one of the founders of Gnosticism and among many other heretical teachings, Gnosticism teaches that that there's a spark of the divine in all of us. And what we see here in Simon is that he believed he had more than a spark. He, he believed, I think, himself to be the Messiah. In fact, later, Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers who was from this area a few years later of Samaria, he, he would write that Simon went around claiming to be the Messiah and claiming that the things he could do were because he was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, now consider that for a moment. You've got Samaria to the north. You've got Jerusalem to the south. At this time in Jerusalem, the followers of Jesus were proclaiming the one true gospel, the true Messiah. Thousands were coming to faith. And just up the road, what's happening? You, you have a false prophet proclaiming a false gospel, and people are responding to that as well. That, that is a reminder for us. That, that is a picture for us of what we often see in the church today. Where God is moving, where people are responding in faith, you better believe the enemy notices that. And the enemy will have his people there too to lead people not to the truth, but to darkness. Not, not to the light, but to lies. And so what we have happening here is as Simon, as Philip is proclaiming the one true gospel, you have Simon communicating, portraying a false gospel. And it's not just words. There's actions backing this up. There are supernatural things happening when he is out there preaching. But this should be no surprise to us. Because Jesus said, guess what? This is going to happen. And he told us, church, we need to be ready for it and we need to be alert to it. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now think about that for a moment. Jesus says there will one day be people who come before him, they call him Lord, and they say, look at our resume of what we did here. We cast out demons. We did miraculous things. If someone comes to us today and gets up here and they do these types of things, some of us might think, well, that means they're legitimate. That means they're from God. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew 7. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just before this, Jesus had told his disciples that there would be many false prophets who would come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly would be ravenous wolves. Church, we need to be aware of this. We need to be alert. Because there are many today, they, they come in the name of God, some in the name of Jesus, but they are false prophets that they are false teachers. They are preaching a false gospel. And many, many, many people are being led astray. So, so how do we know? <laughs> how, how do we recognize them? If they come in the name of Jesus, if they do miraculous things, how do we know that they're false? Jesus told us how we would know. Matthew seven sixteen. You 
will recognize them by their fruits. I am terrible when it comes to recognizing what kind of tree a tree is. I was walking in the backyard one day. One of the kids said, what kind of tree is that? It's a tree. What kind of tree? Big tree? What kind of big tree? Well, a big tree with leaves? I mean, I don't know what kind of tree trees are. Some of you look at, oh, that's a such and such, and that's a such. I don't know those things. I know what an apple tree looks like when it's got apples on it. <laughs> and I can spot an orange tree from 100 yards when it's got oranges on it. Even those who don't have any concept of what tree is what tree, when the fruit is coming off the tree, we become experts. Well, that's a green apple tree. <laughs> that one's an apple. Oh, that's it. And we can say it. Why? We recognize a tree by its fruit. Jesus says, look at the fruit. <laughs> the fruit's going to tell you what kind of tree it is. And he says, you need to look at the fruit of those who claim to be from God, who claim to be from Him. And as you look at that fruit, friends, then you begin to see whether or not they're false prophets or not. Let me say it this way. How many of you, by a show of hands this morning, how many of you like math? Okay, nobody like Okay, a couple people like math. I think we got math teachers here. Hopefully they like math. I'm not a math genius, and you don't have to be a math genius to get this. Here, here's what you need to remember about false prophets. Four, four little math symbols. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Can you remember those? Those are pretty, that's pretty basic. That's math 101. Addition. False prophets add to the word of God. That they will, they will say, oh yeah, the Bible, that's good, but let me tell you what else is here. And they will give you extra revelation. You have probably seen countless commercials from a group called The Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. The Mormon Church. You know what the Mormon Church believes? continuing revelation that this is not the only revelation from god in fact they believe this is one of five authoritative sources in our lives and guess which of those five they believe has errors this one the bible is true they say in so much as it is translated correctly and so when you start to get to passages in the scripture that contradict mormon teachings and there's a ton of them well, that's not translated correctly. Well, that's not translated correctly. What have they done? They have a false prophet named Joseph Smith who received a false revelation. And through that false revelation, he has added to the word of God and millions of people have been led astray. I have yet to go on mission to a place in the world where I have not seen a Mormon missionary who's either been there or is there or their materials are laying where I've been. In sub-Sahara Africa, I go into a hut, and there's Mormon literature there. Anywhere I've been, they take a false gospel to the nations, and we recognize it. Why? Because it adds to the Word of God. Paul warns the Galatians, listen, if we or even an angel communicates a gospel to you contrary to the one that has been given once and for all to the church, then we are to be accursed. It doesn't matter what somebody says they saw, what type of angelic revelation they had. If it contradicts God's Word, it is from hell. And we need to recognize that. False prophets add to the Word of God. False prophets often will also subtract 
they will take away from Jesus. They will not claim Jesus is who He says He is. And so you will have the second largest religion in the world today. Islam. And what do they say about Jesus? Well, He was a prophet. He was a good teacher. No. No, the Bible communicates that, that He was God. Oh, no, 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 no. There's only one God. He's Allah. No, no, Jesus wasn't God. What do they do? They take away from Jesus. Why? Because they've been led by a false prophet named Muhammad who has spread a false teaching and a false gospel around the world. And in some places in the world, it is the fastest growing religion today. And if you want to see the fruit of it, you turn on your evening news. They will add to the word of God. They will subtract from Christ. False prophets often will multiply the requirements for salvation. The gospel is clear. How are we saved? If we confess Christ as Lord, if we believe in our heart God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But what false prophets will do, they'll say, well, that's, that, that's the beginning maybe. That's the first step. But if you really want to experience this, then you've got to do this, 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 and this. If you want to be sure of this, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And you will find within false prophets, a false teaching of works-based salvation. And friends, that's not just in the false religions and in the cults of the world. You will find that preached in the Baptist churches of the world as well. You will find deeply rooted in our churches this sense of moralism. If you just try hard enough, if you look good enough, then that's what you need to do. And that's a lie. What you and I need to do is repent of our sin and turn to Christ. That, that's how we're saved. You're not saved by walking an aisle. You're not saved by getting dunked. You're not saved by getting your name on a roll. You, you are saved by getting your name in a book that Jesus says is the Lamb's book of life. And that happens when we confess Christ as, as Lord. False prophets, lastly, they divide loyalties. Often between God and themselves or their organization or whatever it is. They, they often have a Messiah-like figure and people end up worshiping that teacher more than they do God and when people start to read the, the, the authentic, genuine word of God and bring that to them, they say, ah, da, da, da. you need to listen to me, not, not this. And they teach a false gospel. We need to be on alert. Jesus said, they will look like sheep and they will be ravenous wolves. It's easy for us to look in Acts 8 and say, well, I'm not following the teachings of a magician but we follow many false prophets. And we need to be careful and prepared. Third, as the gospel is proclaimed, as we proclaim the gospel, we need to recognize false professions. Not just false prophets, but false professions. Here, Simon has this power. He has this great influence. And something's happening here. Something's transitioning. The people had followed him and his messianic claims, but now Philip comes and preaches the one true gospel. He preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And what happens? People are believing, and they're being baptized, and there's great joy coming to this city. And along with it, Simon, verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, he was amazed. 
There, there's this picture here, okay? He, he walked the aisle. He made his profession. He said, yeah, I, I believe now. And he followed that up with baptism. And so he's saved, right? He's good, right? So what most of us would say today, that they made their profession, they got baptized, we're good. I sat down in the home of a person in our community about two years after I got here. person is a member of our church, and they had not physically stepped foot in this church for four decades. That's 40 years. I had not stepped foot in the church in 40 years. And so I went to them out of concern about their church membership, but honestly, I went to them concerned for their soul. And as I talked to them, I quickly recognized what I've heard from so many people. Oh, well, yeah, I'm good because when I was such and such age, I walked this aisle and I got baptized and I'm a member of such and such church. And they pull it out like it's their Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card, you know. <laughs> I'm good. Jesus said we would recognize a tree by its fruit. And if you walk past a tree for 40 years and all you see is dried up, dead, withering branches breaking and falling off the tree and rotten wood that just a little bit of wind knocks down. Guess what you've got? You've got a dead tree. And we, in the south, in the Bible Belt, we got a lot of dead trees. Claiming to be... Believers claiming, oh, I, I walked an aisle, I did this thing, I believed, I was baptized. But there's no fruit. The fruit tells us the condition of the tree. And it tells us exactly the condition of Simon. Very quickly. He has made a profession, he has gotten baptized. But notice what happens here. The apostles, they're in Jerusalem. Now remember, Philip was not an apostle. Christ gave authority to the apostles. We don't have the written New Testament at this point. And so you have this apostolic authority being exercised, and you have people coming to faith. And with that, you have people receiving and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that can come from this text that can be problematic, that can spurn much false teaching is this whole notion of, well, the Samaritans became Christians, they believed, but then later they were, they were baptized by the Spirit. What's that all about? We're going to unpack that and talk more because we're going to see that a couple of times in Acts. But for now, I want you to observe something. I want you to observe, Acts is a, is a transitional time in the Scripture. We, we are moving from an old covenant to a new covenant, from Judaism to Christianity. And as we do, we're seeing the Spirit do very specific, unique things. You think about the disciples. The, the disciples believe and respond in faith to Christ follow me, I will follow you, and they are willing to follow him to the death. But they don't receive, they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. And for whatever reason, that's what God does here with the Samaritans. They believe, they hear the gospel, they respond to it, but then you have the apostles who actually come, and then they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're going to unpack that and talk more about it, but for now, notice something. Notice how Simon responds to that. I want that power. <laughs> That's what Simon says. Simon looks at that and he looks at that power and he says, how can I have that? Verse 18, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. What did he do? He offered them money. 
Give me this power also. Can you imagine the gall of someone who thinks they can write a check and that's going to cover their sin? We do it all the time. Our churches are filled with that. And if it's not a check, it's a service. If you'll just do this, if you'll just write this check, then, then you'll be okay. You see, we've fallen into a false understanding of the Gospel just like it appears Simon has. Simon thinks, if I believe, if I'm baptized, if I give enough money, then I'll be powerful. And I can have the prestige I once had. I can have the power I once have. I think what we see clearly in Acts 8 is that Simon did not want repentance. He wanted a reputation. He did not want Christ to be his master. He he simply wanted to perform miracles. He did not want a savior. He just wanted signs and he wanted power. And what I believe we see here in Simon is what I believe we see all the time. False professions. People who claim to believe, but in their heart nothing has changed. And they're here all the time and there are other churches and they will put on their Sunday's best thinking that will somehow cover up Saturday's worst. <laughs> if I just look good enough, I'll be okay. That, that might be you today. That, that might be where you're at where you look and realize, you know... If people really knew. Well, guess what? God does. And I don't say any of that to shame you. I say that to invite you. (laughs) Because the gospel offers us freedom from the burden of guilt and sin. The the, the gospel offers us the opportunity to repent and turn from that sin and walk in a new life in Christ Jesus. It is a beautiful thing. But so many times we fall into a false notion, a false gospel, and we think, no, if, if, I just, if I just do enough, if I work hard enough, if I try. I read an article a number of years ago where a man was talking about his giving of blood. He, at that point, had given more blood than anyone had ever given to the Red Cross. And so that was quite a story. So they interviewed him and they asked him why. Why'd you do it? I mean, most people give this amount. You far exceeded that. Why'd you do it? You know what that man said? That's what the article said. He said, one day, quote, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates and he's going to ask me, why should you be allowed into heaven? And I'm going to be able to look at him and say, because I gave more blood than anyone else ever did. You might not have a Red Cross card that says you've given more blood than anyone else, but there are many of us who carry a different card around saying, but I've done this. And we think somehow we're going to stand before God and plead our case and say, well, look at what I did. And I tried to do right. And and, and I did better than a lot of other people. And just like that man in that article, we are putting our faith in the wrong thing. In his case, he was putting his faith in the wrong blood. Because it doesn't matter how much blood is drained from this body. It matters the blood that was shed from Christ for me and for you. 
And God says simply, one day we will stand before Him. And we either will stand there and say, look at what I have done to atone for my sin, and we will come up short every time. Or we will stand before Him and say, Christ's death was sufficient for me. And I placed my faith in Him and He was my Lord and His blood has now covered me. And that's why the Scripture says, when we get that picture of heaven, we're all clothed in robes of righteousness. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. But friends, understand, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, getting dunked in a church, doesn't secure that. I believe those are evidences of it. But just because you've done those things, it doesn't mean that you're any more saved than Simon is. And so notice how Peter responds to Simon. And consider how we respond to those people who have no fruit in their life of salvation. But they've got that card. I walked an aisle, I'm a member of this church. No fruit whatsoever. What do we normally say to them? Oh, well, you know. Hope you come to church next week. (laughs) You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter looks at Simon and says, Simon, you are lost as you were before you heard the gospel and you need to repent. Friends, that's what you need this morning. That's what I need this morning. We need to repent and be freed from our sin. And we need to look to those who seem so comfortable in their lostness. (laughs) And we need to let them know that they are lost. And in a loving, gracious way, say to them, repent, repent, repent. And when we come to this table together, we are reminded of that every single time. Because the Lord's Supper is not a reminder to us of what we did to be saved. It's a reminder to us of what Christ did on our behalf that we might have life in Him. The Lord's Supper simply is the gospel being proclaimed to us and us proclaiming the gospel to others. It's a reminder to us that when we stand before God, We're not going to talk about what we did. The only thing to talk about is what Christ did for us. And that's why we participate in this as a reminder. But hear this. Paul tells the Corinthians very specifically, he says, okay, before you receive this, examine yourselves. See, there's only only one person in this room that can examine your heart today, and that's you. I can't do it. People beside you can't do it. You can You know what's there. You know if you've authentically repented and trusted in Christ or if you're just kind of going through the religious motions so many people go through. The gospel says, the the word says, examine yourselves. And then it warns us, if you don't examine yourself, then when you take this bread and this cup, you are bringing judgment on yourself. And let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That, That doesn't mean that only those who are perfect today can receive the Lord's Supper. But what it does mean is this, only those who have trusted in a perfect Christ and been covered by His blood should receive the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean that to receive it, 
You have no sin ever in your life. What it means is to receive it, you need to repent and turn from that sin. It is a reminder to us, friends, that the Christian life is not just about walking an aisle. It's about walking in faith. And as we walk in faith, we will have struggles and we will have trials, but our minds, our eyes are to be set on the cross and on the gospel of Jesus. And if that's where yours is today, if you're a professing believer of the Lord, if you're examining your heart, then we invite you to receive this with us. And so I want to invite the deacons to come forward now as we transition into a time to observe the Lord's Supper together.